Thanks, Todd and Summer. I don't know that I need to preach today. That was amazing. Really, really wonderful and encouraging. But alas, you don't get off that easy. Uh, if you would, church, turn to Matthew 1 with me. That's where we'll start today. And if there's any parents that want kids to go to some age-specific teaching that's offered now called Gospel Project. Uh, last Sunday morning, we began a, a short uh, three-sermon series that we've uh, entitled uh, The Saving One. And rather than starting at a particular book in the Bible and working our way paragraph by paragraph all the way through from start to finish like we normally do, uh, instead we're looking across uh, many books in the Bible, thinking about a specific topic and what the Scriptures say about them. And the topic we're considering is uh, salvation. What does it mean that Jesus is the saving one? How does that relate to what we celebrate at Christmas? And in particular, the Bible says that Christians are people who have been saved, uh, are being saved, and will be saved. And so each week we're looking at um, one of those. Now, just a practical kind of application to let you know where we're, where we're going to head in this message. It'll take a while to get there. But what I want to try to connect for you is essentially uh, this. If you're a follower of Jesus and you feel at times uh, frustrated, uh, discouraged, powerless, that you have, uh, no matter how hard you've tried, you've just slipped into the same uh, bad behavior again and again and again, or that there is some good, right, godly thing you know you're supposed to do, but you just haven't been able to muster up the strength to do it yet. How does that happen? How is it that we can feel as believers rather defeated, discouraged, frustrated, and almost as though like we look around and Christianity seems to be working for everybody else except us? What is that? What, what causes that to happen? What do we do about it? That's what I want to try to describe this morning as we consider the significance of the fact that followers of Jesus are not just people who have been saved, but people who are being saved. We're in a process that God is working out. So that's where we're going to head together this morning. But first, would you look with me um, at uh, Matthew chapter 1? And we'll consider um, a, a connection to, to Christmas uh, first. So look with me at verse um, 18, if you would. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And we talked last week about what betrothal meant and why this was the most horrible possible time that Mary could become pregnant. But notice there's another phrase there that's equally as kind of strange and odd. Namely, this phrase that she was found to be with child uh, from the Holy Spirit. That's weird. That's not how this works. There are a lot of strange things in the Bible, and this is certainly one of them that's uh, way up there. Matthew 1 makes the audacious claim 
that Mary was pregnant from the Holy Spirit, meaning that before Mary ever had sex, she found herself miraculously to be with child. Now, this is uh, the only time this something like that has ever happened, and we Christians know it, but do you know the significance of it? Do you know why it had to be that way? Let me take just two or three minutes and, and explain. I've found over the years that this is one of those doctrines that we hear about, but don't, don't really grasp the significance of. We just kind of sweep it under the rug because it sounds so weird. Like people actually believe that happened? Yes, Jesus came back from the dead. All kinds of other things are possible too, right? So what's up with Mary getting pregnant by means of this miraculous conception from the Spirit? Well, the major point I'd want to make is that it was absolutely essential that Jesus come to earth in that way, because if He didn't, His mission would not have been able to be fulfilled. Here's what I mean. Before the conception, Jesus already existed. Jesus has always existed. He's part of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. So Jesus didn't come into being when He was born on earth, but He did take on flesh. And so in His, birth, in his conception, evidenced in His birth, He became 100% God and 100% man at the same time. For that to happen, He had to be without an earthly father. Let me explain. Jesus could not enter the human race by normal means because if Joseph had had sex with Mary and that produced Jesus, then Jesus would be in the line of Adam. He would be part of the first string, if you will, of humanity, the first human race. But Jesus came to produce another race, another people, a second Adam. And so he had to have an earthly, not an earthly father, but a heavenly father. Because if he'd been born an Adam, he would have been born a sinner. God can't be born a sinner, and a sinner would not be able to be a sinless sacrifice. So as weird as this doctrine sounds, it's immensely important and extremely practical. Jesus was born, conceived and born in this way because He's 100% God, 100% man, and He came to save us from our sin. It had to be like this. Now let's read on, verse 19. And her husband, Joseph... Being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, meaning the scandal of telling the person you're engaged to who's supposed to be proving her sexual faithfulness. I know you've been unfaithful. I'm going to put you away quietly instead of publicly. That's what that's referencing. Joseph was planning to do that. But, verse 20, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph. Is this cutting out for you all? Is it just me? Yeah? How often? Like, should I change? You want to take a vote? I'm joking. Okay. I'm going to try a little bit longer. Mark, wave at me if it keeps happening. Can you do that? 
Great. Thank you. Okay. It's bugging the snot out of me. Um, I have no idea where I was. Uh, Joseph, uh, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus is significant. Today, we often pick names just based on, well, I saw that person in a TV show and I like that name. It didn't work that way in the Scriptures. Um, if that's where your name came from, that's wonderful. I'm so glad. <laughs> right? But Jesus is the English word for the Greek word Jesus, Jesus. Jesus is the Greek word for the Hebrew name Joshua. Joshua means Yahweh saves. And so, in the name of Jesus is bound up His whole person and work. Jesus came to save. He's the Savior. And as the Savior, He is the one who saves. So, every time you pray a prayer and you end it in Jesus' name, you are calling to the one who is your Savior, brothers and sisters. There's a lot in His name. This is who He is. Jesus came to save His people from their sins. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call His name Emmanuel. Now, that's confusing. Which one is it? Is it Jesus or is it Emmanuel? You've you got to learn to read the Bible not so, like, stuffy. There's confusing things in it, and that's part of its wonder. That's part of what figuring out what's happening in it. That we know of, Jesus was never actually called Emmanuel. So when, uh, when he was running around as a baby, as a child, uh, his mom didn't yell, Emmanuel, it's time to eat. Uh, or when he was learning the trade with Joseph, his father. His father, as far as we know, didn't ever say, uh, Emmanuel, you're going to smack your thumb with that hammer if you do it like that. They called him Jesus. But the name Emmanuel is significant because it means God with us. And so Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. So it's pointing more to the significance than what he's actually called. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. The significance of Joseph in that moment calling Jesus, Jesus, is that he became his adopted father. The naming was the claiming. At Christmas, we commemorate this miracle of the incarnation, that God took on flesh to save His people from their sins, that God secured salvation. But what is salvation? So, as we think together about salvation in this brief three-week, three-sermon series, we'll finish on Christmas Eve, what is salvation? We're thinking about 
the fact that salvation is expressed in its most important way as saving us from the wrath of God, from our sinfulness. And when we often use that word, we only use it in the past tense. That's one way the Bible talks about salvation. That's what we visited about last week. You'll see here on the screen that salvation is, though, also present and future, meaning Christians have been saved. If you know Jesus Christ, if He's your Lord and Savior, there's a sense in which your salvation is done, it's complete, it's over, it's fulfilled. There's another sense in which it's present, that it's, you are being saved. It's not yet finished. That's what we think about together today. And then on Christmas Eve, we'll talk about the future, that Christians will be saved. Now, so far, that's just review. We did that last week. But if we sort of slice that, open it up, and look inside, then there's more to that than what I've said so far. Another way to put it is that Christians have been saved from the penalty of sin, meaning the wages of sin is death, and Christ took our death for us. But in the present, what's God doing in our lives as followers of Jesus? Well, Christians are people who are being saved, meaning we are coming to experience the victory that is already ours over the power of sin. We're learning how to obey God in all things. And in future, Christians will be saved, meaning there will be a day in which there will no longer be the presence of sin or any of its damaging, harmful effects, either when we die or in the return of Christ. That's the way salvation works in the Bible. If, though, we are people who have been saved, then the question I want to try to ask today is, if that's true, if you've already been forgiven and freed and adopted and declared right with God and reconciled, then why do we Christians still struggle with pride, with jealousy, with anger, with lust, with manipulation? Have I hit one of yours yet? Why do we still battle intensely with things we know we ought not do? with thoughts we know we ought not dwell on, but we do, with behavior we know we ought to pursue, but we don't. If it's true that Christians have been saved, and that power, in the sense of being unable to break free, if that has been broken, then why do we still sin? If I could put it crassly, why are we dogs that keep going back to our vomit. That's what sin is. It's a gross pile that brings nothing good. Why do we keep doing it again and again and again and again when the penalty of sin has already been forgiven or in Christ? Well, friends, it's because we are still being saved. This morning, I want to try to show you this 
and then end with a very practical tool for what to do when you're tempted that you and I might not sin, all right? So if you would turn with me now over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'll show you one place where we see this language that we are being saved, that we are being saved. We're going to look at three more passages. If you don't want to turn to them all, I totally understand. That's fine. They'll be on the screens. But if you want to, look with me at 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says this, and as I read, notice the verbs. We're going to come back to them. We're geeking out today, all right? Notice the verbs. Now, I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, what you received, in which you stand, by which, here it is, you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. I know all the college students, high school, middle school, you're all on break. But think with me about verbs for a minute, okay? Look closely, and I heard an amen. Was that you, Josh? You like verbs, huh? Great. You are are weird. (laughs) All right, so verbs. Now, I want to, here's the first one. Uh, remind. Paul set out in this passage to remind the Corinthian church of something they already knew. And this has been recorded for us that we too might hear something we already know. Friend, you don't just need to hear things you already, you don't yet know. Much of the Christian life is hearing what we've already heard, being reminded of it because we slip back into not believing it. And so, we want to be reminded of something today. And what is it? Well, the gospel. And how did the gospel come to the Corinthians? Well, the next verb is preached. The way people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, the way they experience salvation, is through God's Word. They hear it preached in an environment like this, or you share it with them over a cup of coffee in Starbucks, or something insane might happen at the Christmas table instead of fighting at the meal, somebody might hear the gospel. The gospel must be heard. It's heard as people share it. Now, you may not be a vocational preacher like I am, but you are still called to share God's Word if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. It happens in all kinds of different ways. The gospel must be heard if Jesus is to be believed. This is the means God uses. So, they're reminding them of the gospel that was preached. Now, what did they do? Well, if you look closely, the next verb is received. They received this gospel word. Christians, you've heard the gospel, and because you've heard the gospel and If you will, God turned the light on in the darkness of your heart to help you see your need for Him and how great He is and how wonderful the love of Jesus is, as Summer described in her testimony. And so, you exercised trust in Jesus, turning from sin and turning to Him. That's what it means to receive Christ, to receive 
the gospel. The good news is not a message that we achieve. It is an act of God that we receive. Can you imagine how different your experience in Christianity would be if you believed that? You do not achieve a relationship with God. It is received. You do not continue it by achieving, but by continuing to receive. This is part of the wonder and the scandal of a gospel of grace. So we receive it. We receive Him. Now, what are we doing now? Well, that's the next verb. In which you stand. By God's grace, brothers and sisters, in the past, you came to no longer stand on your own failures or your own accomplishments that resulted in pride. Instead, you've come to stand only on Christ and what Christ has done. And it's in that posture of standing in Jesus that you continue to live life. You stand in Him. You stand on the gospel of grace. And then there's that verb that we're talking about this morning. You are being saved. And so we've, we heard the gospel. We received Christ, the gospel message, and now we're standing in Him, and what is God doing? Well, God is in the process then of saving us so that we would experience the victory that is ours over the power of sin. When you became a Christian, brothers and sisters, spiritually speaking, you were reborn. You became an infant. And those of you who have had babies, or who babysit, or who are an aunt or uncle, or just haven't been living under a rock, babies don't come knowing what to do. Babies come able to do a couple of things which you don't need me to remind you of. That's it. And they must be nurtured in every way. And they slowly, gradually, incrementally grow up. That's the same thing that happens with a new Christian. And what are we growing up into? Well, we're growing up into the confirmation or the conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. We're going to look like Him. I want to show you that in a passage in a few minutes. Now, perhaps you're here this morning, though, and you're newer to the Bible. And a lot of this is like, I hear the words, but blah, blah, blah. What in the world are they talking about? I don't know anything about salvation or gospel, and I don't really know what Jesus did. Well, we're so glad you're here. The next paragraph will answer those questions. If you look with me at verse 3, it says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. So if we stop there and we'll read on in a moment. Friends, the gospel is the message that Jesus left heaven, took on flesh, lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father, and thereby was able to offer Himself as a substitute 
for sinners. He took the penalty of sin upon himself. The one we offended took on our offense. It's incredible. And in so doing, he died, he was buried, and he rose again. So in his death, he brings freedom from the penalty of sin, and in his life, he gives victory and power and life again. That, friend, is what every Christian church that exists believe. That is the essential message of the Bible. That's what Summer found so radically changed her, and you can too. But this didn't happen in a vacuum. There were other people that saw it. That's why all these witnesses are listed. Verse 6, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, meaning they've died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Now listen to how Paul describes the way in which you live the Christian life, the way in which he was experiencing that he is being saved. Verse 9, I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. As a little convoluted way of getting at it, in the sense of it's just complicated. But, but hear what Paul's saying. He's saying, the way I'm experiencing growing up in Jesus is, I am what I am by the grace of God and His grace alone. But, but I'm working. I'm putting in the work because I want to grow. But it's not really me, it's the grace of God in me. That's it. That is the experience of being saved. Um, most of you know I was uh, born to parents who loved Jesus. Um, I might as well have been conceived and born in the church. I don't think either of those were true as far as I know, <laughs> but it sure felt like it. And I've never known anything different than Christ and His church. At um, 11, 12 years old, the Lord saved me. But for the next decade or so, my experience of Christianity was pretty miserable. In some ways, it felt like life got way harder after I was saved than it was before. And that made no sense to me. And I was too arrogant and prideful to ask anybody what the heck is going on. I thought that the way salvation worked is only past tense. I thought I had been saved, therefore I should have no present struggle with sin. Therefore, when I'm tempted, just pray, God, take this, and if He was really for me, He would. That's how I thought this worked. I did not understand that I was being saved. And so that made, frankly, um, 
a long stretch of my life as a believer, incredibly painful, in which I looked around and saw everybody else singing and thought, either they're a fraud or I am, because this doesn't work. Either they have tapped into a power that's real, or they're pretending, or I am, because I'm not experiencing anything of a victorious Christian life. In fact, I think I suck at this being a Christian thing. It doesn't seem to work for me. And that then moved into tremendous doubt over whether any of this was true at all. My hope is today that even if there's just one of you that feel as though you're having a similar experience in any way, shape, or form, that you would see that not only have you been saved, but you are being saved. It is not yet done. How does that work, though? I want to show you one more passage and then a final, uh, uh, one more passage to explain it, and then a final passage to show you what to do about it. So flip with me to the next book, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, the reason I don't, it's not my favorite thing to preach this way, where we're jumping across books, is we're jumping right in the middle of a conversation, and there's not the time to fully unpack it today. But let me very briefly tell you the context. Way back in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, there was a man named Moses who led God's people. And we're told repeatedly that Moses would go into God's presence and meet with him. He was, he was a mediator of sorts, if you will, between God and people. And this will sound nuts, but there's lots of things that sound nuts in the Bible. That doesn't mean they're not true. Moses, when he met with God, was physically impacted by that meeting. We're told that his face would glow, that physically he was transformed by his meeting with God. Now, I realize that sounds crazy, but we talk that way today. How many times have you heard somebody say to a pregnant woman, you glow. If pregnant women can glow, Moses can too. (laughs) All right? So Moses has met with God and Moses is glowing. And the Old Testament tells us that he put a veil over his face. But the emphasis in the Old Testament is he put that veil over his face because people were freaked out. They were scared. Like people don't glow like that. But Moses did. And so he shielded them from it. But it turns out there's a second reason why he covered himself. He also covered his face because over time, the glory, the glow of his face faded because he wasn't still in the presence of God. And he didn't want people to know that because they find that discouraging. So he covered his face. Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 takes that imagery to tell us how much better we have it in the New Testament, that we don't have veiled faces because the glory of God doesn't ever depart from us. The Spirit's been given to us and lives in us permanently. It's a very, very cool image. 
So, with that in mind, look at verse 17. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. My guess is a bunch of you know that verse, and you don't know the next one. And we, who with unveiled faces, don't miss the encouragement here. Why are our faces not veiled? They're not veiled because the glory that we have in Jesus Christ by means of the Spirit doesn't fade. It's growing ever more glowing, even if we can't see it. So obviously we're not talking about something physical here, but the physical in the Old Testament representing something spiritual happening now in the new. With unveiled faces, all reflect what or who? We reflect the Lord's glory. And we're being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This is one of the most beautiful passages in the entire Bible. It's also not at all commonly known. Let me see if I can illustrate the illustration. A couple of months ago, um, there was something in the backyard causing a problem that put my wife into distress. We have these two very tall bushes that she likes a lot. And when we bought our house, they were about that big. We, plant, we had them planted. And now they're huge. And they've always been very green, very pretty, doing what they're supposed to do. Now, I don't know anything about this stuff, and that's going to become evident in just a moment. Just be gracious to me. So, when you live in Arizona and you have something green and it begins to go brown, what's the first thing you think of? Water. So, I know enough to check the sprinkler. Sprinkler's going just fine. That's not the problem. As I looked closer, it looked like, well, not only is it turning brown, but like half the leaves are half gone. What's up with that? So, I assumed it was some kind of uh, fungus or bacteria. And so, Jill sent me to the store, the store where you pay $900 for the bottle this big. It's absurd. It's liquid gold. And then you're supposed to put that on your plant, and it'll miraculously get fixed, right? If you own a home, you've done this. So, I go to the store with a picture. I've learned that I can't describe anything to anybody in that setting in a way that makes sense. So, I held the picture up to the lady and said, this is what's going on. What do I do? She looks at it and like in 10 seconds says, you have a caterpillar. I said, what? The little fuzzy, cute, little furry things? She said, yes. And uh, the solution is this bottle and it'll flush him out. So I took it home. Sure enough, boop, it's gone. Plant came back to life. Evervescent, ever bright, glorious bush. How does a little caterpillar ruin a bush, what, 500,000 times its size? How does that happen? Little by little. It just slowly chewed away at the thing. Now, we know what happens with caterpillars, right? Caterpillars go into a cocoon, and then in that cocoon, there's a terrible struggle. This is not a happy time for caterpillar. Caterpillar struggles 
as Caterpillar is transformed, and then eventually out comes a glorious butterfly. And we stop, we take pictures, we point, we marvel. We're amazed at these creatures that God has made. Do you know what that process is called? Metamorphosis. The word metamorphosis is a transliteration of the Greek word that's right there in this passage, transformed. Christian, if you have been saved, you are in the middle of the cocoon process. You're in the painful part. You were what looked to be cute and fuzzy and adorable, and yet you were destroying things. That's what sin does. Sin ruins stuff. That's who we were. But we're not yet butterflies. We are enwrapped in a cocoon. Have you seen the things when they're coming out? They shake violently. It's a battle. That's what it means that we are being saved. We are battling against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We are battling against our minds that learned to live apart from God until we were saved. And so we know pretty well how to rely on ourselves, even though it doesn't actually work. And in some ways, our instincts still pull us back there. And yet, greater is He who is within us than he that is within the world. And so, if this is nasty caterpillar destroying things and this is glorious butterfly, that is not a direct straight line. This cocoon that we're in is a mess. And growing up in Christ is wonderful, but it is also very hard. And it's hard because we, we're filled still with opportunities to choose things we ought not choose, to neglect what we ought not neglect. And in some ways, some sin still t- tastes appetizing. But when we do it, we find it to not really work, right? It doesn't really give us what we want. And so we shake in that cocoon as God brings conviction and we give ourselves to Him afresh and anew. It's hard, not because Christianity doesn't work for you. It's hard, not because you're not doing it right. It's hard, Christian, not because it works for everybody else who stands and sings happily with smiles on their face while they're not struggling and you are. It's hard because we're in the cocoon. We are being transformed. Now, what do we do in that process? Well, 1 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18 says, we look at Jesus. We look to Christ. Christ is the one in whom's, in whom's I can't even say that right, in whose, there it is, image, we are being transformed. And so, 
Um, have you ever noticed that couples that have been married like 40, 50, 60 years, they look alike? It's weird. It's like, did you marry someone you shouldn't have because you look related? It's a bizarre thing. Friend, that's what happens to Christians. As you spend time with Jesus in His Word, lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of times, then what happens is you're beholding in a mirror the glory of the Lord, and slowly but surely you are being transformed so that you look like your Savior. And that's God's work, not yours. But you got to look in the mirror. You got to look to Christ. Because we become what we behold. We become what we behold. Why is it that our society is like literally getting ripped apart by the seams? And this is not getting better, it's getting worse. Well, it's because. Now, technologically, we have the ability to have these, like, five people that agree with us on some ridiculous thing, and we feel powerful because there's five people, and it feels like five million, and now we can argue and tell everybody else why they're such morons, and there's voice to it, and so all these groups are fighting, 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 fighting. We're becoming what we're beholding. We're looking longingly into ourselves instead of into Christ. Stop. Let's behold Jesus so that we'll look like Him. Now, how do you do that? Well, believe it or not, I can tell you in five minutes. I promise. It is the best place I know, Romans chapter 6, that shows us how to work this out in our experience. Romans 6. It's the last passage I'll ask you to turn to. As I read this passage, I want you to notice three words. They are know, the word know, K-N-O-W, consider, and present. Those three words give you a very practical strategy for living in the cocoon. Know, consider, present. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live new lives. Paul's saying, in essence, you have been saved. And why? Now watch the way this works out practically. If we've been united with Him in His death, We will certainly also be united with Him in His resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with Him so that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. The death that's being talked about here is not physical death. It's spiritual. So he's saying... How do you live in the cocoon, if you will? Well, when you are in a moment or temptation or when you're well past it and you're in the middle of a sin you don't want to do, but you're doing it, 
How do you, how do you stop? The first thing is to tell yourself in prayer, talk to God, God, I know that I'm dead to sin. God, I know because of Jesus Christ, I do not have to do or to continue to do this. God, I'm dead to sin. It's, its power has been broken. Its penalty has been paid. It is no longer my master. God, I know I'm dead to sin. Now, read on with me. Verse 8, now if we died with Christ, we believe we'll also live with Him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over Him. The death He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. In the same way, consider or count yourselves alive to God. Now, in verse 11, we are told that not only are we dead to sin, but we're alive to God. And so that's the second thing. That's the second word. God, I know I'm dead to sin. I don't have to do this. I've found myself in the midst of it. Let's take gossip. God, I have a problem running. Christmas is coming. How about jealousy or envy or covetousness? That one's better. So you're at, you're at the Christmas celebration, and the gift that you would have loved to get gets unwrapped and somebody else gets it. And you feel envious over it and you nurture that envy and you begin thinking about how much of a worse person she is than you and how you deserved it and you should have gotten the gift. And so now that that's festering, it's become sinful. So God, God, I know I'm dead to sin. I don't have to continue to walk in this covetousness. Thank you, God, that I've been freed from it. But dadgummit, I've picked it up again, and I'm enjoying it, and I want to bring it to a close. But I can't because I'm still being saved. God, so I consider myself alive to you. Not only did I die to that covetousness, but now I'm alive to instead do things that honor you. God, I'm alive to you. Verse 11, verse 12 Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. Do not offer parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life, and offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness. So, know, consider, present. We are to present our bodies to God. And so, God... I know I'm dead to that covetousness, God, I know I'm alive to you, and God, now instead of using my mind to fixate on what I don't have, I want to thank you for what I do have. Or consider it one other way, one other illustration, then I'm done. Let's say you're on the sports page, innocently, looking at the scores, and dadgummit, they run those little ads down the side with women that aren't dressed very well. And in a moment of weakness, you click there. And before you know it, you're all the way down the wormhole of porn. It wasn't planned. You didn't set out to do it, but you fall into temptation. How do you get out of it? Well, you don't beat yourself up for the next week. And you don't say, well, I'm already there. I might as well just enjoy it for the next three weeks. No, you say, God, I, 
God, I know I'm dead to this sin. It does not have mastery over me. God, not only am I dead to it, but I'm alive to you. I live for you. You live in me. Your spirit is transforming me. It does not have power over me, even though it feels like it. And God, I want to present my eyes to you for good instead of for evil. That's real key. God, I want to use the eyes you've given me instead of looking lustfully on sin. I'm going to pick up the scriptures and I'm going to look at something holy and think about you. Know, consider, present. That's how you live in the cocoon. That's how you look to Jesus. And this is best done in community as we help each other. Would you stand with me and let's pray. God, we pray you'd use your word yet again to help us remember what we know and to live in light of it. I pray if there's anyone here who's not genuinely converted, that God today you would save. And I pray that as a result of what we've talked about, our experience of living in this cocoon would become easier because we understand what's happening and help us to help each other well. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.